0: Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Hello? Oh, gosh. (laughs) All right. So, I won't make you do that again. Trust me. Um, Glad to be here. You're doing okay? Yeah? How was Easter break two weeks ago? Good. (laughs) How about how was uh, how's April going so far? It's been a while, hasn't it? You know, it's been a while since we've been together. So, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin, and I'm the campus minister for RUF Reformed University Fellowship, which is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve you all wherever you are and whoever you are. And we mean that. We mean this is for every kind of person. At least that's our intention. We don't just want to be one scene on campus. We don't just want to be one kind of person from one kind of personal background. We want to represent everyone as much as we can. We hope that this feels welcoming to you no matter where you come from or um, maybe what you identify with. And so what we mean that even just with spirituality, uh, you don't necessarily have to buy into Jesus or Christianity to be here. In fact, we're really glad that you're here if you don't count yourself as being convinced or uh, believing in Christianity all the way through We're really glad you're here. Um, We're also really glad if you do believe in Christianity and you do buy into Jesus all the way through. We're glad that too. So, um, and again, like those are hard categories. So maybe you say none of the above. Maybe you circle that one or maybe you circle somewhere in between. And that's fine. We're just, again, like we just hope you feel welcomed. I want to say a couple of quick hellos and and thanks for coming. There's a group in the back, I think from Back Creek, appropriately. Um, So they came and brought some snacks for us and they're staying up late with us. So, Maybe we should just give them a round of applause already. Uh of you. Scotty of you back there. Um, so thank you for doing that. And please say hello to them afterwards. I'll say that kind of come at the end. Um, also, there's a group up front uh, from Stonebridge Church. So we got two churches. Uh, we'll let them fight it out at the end. Um, <laughs> no, seriously. They're both wonderful churches. They're both uh, really doing us a favor by visiting. Um, and they're just excited to meet you. So if you want to say hello to them, as well as Brent and... Mary, thank you. So you want to say hello to them, that would be awesome as well. So anyway, um, also, like, if you're just new, if this is your first time here, or maybe it's your first time in a while, or maybe it's your first time, or feels like your first time every time, we're really glad you're here. We hope you feel welcomed, especially, um, and I'm thank- thankful for the time and the risk you took to get here. Okay, this semester in large group, that's kind of what we're up to right here, right now, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7 of the book of Matthew. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. These chapters contain some of the most famous words of Jesus. And this worldwide historical track record is why I'm making the case that the Sermon on the Mount is essential Christian teaching. Historically and geographically, it's been central to every generation and every cultural's take on Christianity. It's been a part of what it means to be a Christian as it's defined by Christians and non-Christians alike. It's been a real central figure to that. But whether you call yourself Christian or not, we all tend to read the Sermon on the Mount the same way. as three more chapters of good advice that I should really get around to. And as if Jesus' words to us here and everywhere else were just like another practice to start to do, like mindfulness or good posture or, lawn or picking up laundry <laughs> or basic food shopping. You know, like the, you know, the practice that kind of just slouches, maybe piles on the floor, maybe mocks you every time you open the mini fridge. Um, regardless, like, we are really glad that Jesus does not have to fit into that category, nor does the Sermon on the Mount, because let's just take a deep breath and realize that this is an invitation. Let's read the Sermon on the Mount as an invitation. Jesus is asking us to see the world and to see ourselves differently. To see us ourselves and our lives and the world around us with spiritual imagination. And so that's why we're calling the series title. I know. I'll just I'll just do the I'll just do the main title, no subtitle tonight. Beyond good advice. Beyond good advice. Okay. So this week we're beginning chapter seven, the final chapter of Sermon of the Mount. We're rounding the corner and we're actually gonna slow down at the end of the sermon series, which is unheard of. In Sermon Series History, usually you just pile the rest of it in a big, giant mess, but we're going to go a little bit slower, and we're going to look at Chapter 7 about four different approaches. Uh, In Chapter 5, I'm going to use some words from Dale Bruner. We surveyed the width of mercy. That's what we looked at in Chapter 5, the width of mercy. That is God asking us to love in ways that are far from narrow, far from narrow-minded, far from narrow-hearted. Chapter 6, we surveyed the height of faith, the height of faith. God asked us to trust in him in ways that are dizzyingly high and dizzyingly practical. And now in chapter 7, we're looking at the depth of justice, the depth of justice. Even in verses 1 through 6 that we just heard read, God is asking us to wade into our lives well past the shallow end and into the deeps. So would you pray with me and for me as we go there to God's depths and our depths? Father, thanks for this time. Um, I don't take it for granted. Uh, at least I try not to. And I pray that we wouldn't, no matter where we are with you, that you'd meet us, uh, that you'd shake us up, that you'd change us, that whether we're bored already or whether we're excited um, or whether we're not sure why we're here or we're definitely sure why we came I pray that you'd meet us and I pray that you'd you'd move and that you would be high and lifted up Jesus that within a day that we would see you afresh that we'd see you high and lifted up more beautiful and more believable to the eyes of our hearts and that that would make an impact that would um, change the way that we live and change the way that we see everything else and see everyone else including ourselves in Jesus' name we pray amen uh, some of you know this detail. Uh, I grew up in a downtown neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I had very mixed feelings about growing up there, just really honestly. Uh, it was a German village, if you want to know. Uh, you can always visit. Pilgrimage. Uh, I often wished I grew up closer to many other kids my age, which was the suburbs. Okay? In the latter part of the 20th century, this is a history lesson. Uh, living in an urban area was not on the trend it wasn't trending upwards for families young families were not into living in downtown neighborhoods and maybe they still aren't but at the same time and this is no offense meant to many of you while I lived in this neighborhood I felt like I wished I was in the suburbs but at the same time I felt a silent superiority to the suburbs like crimeless perfectly edged lawns houses with an open floor plan and buffed minivans and SUVs in every driveway I'm afraid in college and then in my 20s this silence, these silent judgments just got louder. Uh, the eye roll every time I saw a soccer mom with an endless supply of juice boxes. The sighs of the inflatable birthday party castle. The scoffs at the mandatory youth soccer requirement that every child is engaged to have to be in. Um, but then in, the, in early September of 2016 I was undone. I experienced a moment of deep and complete self-realization. At 8.20 a.m., on a Saturday morning, I slowly turned my 2010 maroon touring package Honda Odyssey minivan (laughs) into a sea of shining minivans and SUVs. As far as the eye could see, there were peppy preppy mothers and visor-wearing dads. Moms holding the hands of, the, of their newest bed-headed soccer recruit. Dads dragging, sloshing igloo coolers filled with endless juice boxes. Then, as my wife and I unloaded our van full of shin-padded-up children who were playing youth soccer, folding chairs, and, yes, our igloo cooler with snacks in it, I felt nauseous. <laughs> True story. I did the math. Yes, my children attended bounce house parties. Check. Yes, my house has an open floor plan. Check. Okay, my yard is in need of lots of work, (laughs) not perfectly edged, a dandelion paradise. But I couldn't deny that I was one tripped Dick's sporting good away from buying a sporty visor. I had become what my younger self most despised a suburban dad. <laughs> in the language of our passage tonight, that summit, sunny September morning, with judgment I pronounced, with the judgment I pronounced, I was judged. With the measure I used, I was measured. <laughs> Weaving my way through the endless lines of massive convenience, fuel-inefficient Yukons and Tahoes and Odysseys and towns and countries, I felt the speck in my eye instantly and subjectively grow to a log. (laughs) I recognize this is a little over the top, perhaps a somewhat silly example. After all, how principled and how important was my condemnation of suburbia? Yes, I did have a few sociological points in my early days about the socioeconomic exclusivity, the superficiality (coughs) of the American dream, and yes, the bad gas mileage of suburbia. No, moving to and growing up in, sub- in the suburbs is not necessarily evil and not necessarily even bad, okay? But you get this idea, right? All of us can go there. We judge and are judged by people all of the time. That's what we do. We're always judging. We're always being judged. People talk about us unfairly behind our backs, and we do the same thing. Sometimes we even talk about the way they talk about us behind our backs, behind their backs, we struggle to even be in the same space as people who disagree with us. Just look at the way this campus works socially on an average day. Look at the way that our nation works politically and in, in, even outside of election season. Sadly, in my heart, I judge not just suburbia, but I judge other pastors and other ministries and other churches, and even the denomination I've publicly vowed to support, but, Does this idea of judge not, this whole passage, does it rule out all criticism? Does the potential for discrimination dismiss the possibility of discernment? What's the difference between critical thinking and a critical spirit? What's the difference between evaluation versus condemnation? I mean, can I hold a differing opinion with someone about something big and not get all judgy on them? can someone get heated and disagree with me and it not feel like character assassination? These are just, not just questions for a college campus in the 2010s. I would contend that these are human questions that go back for thousands of years, even arguably to the time of Jesus when he was on earth. And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus addresses these questions about how to live with other real human beings. And here's my paraphrase of what Jesus says. Expect imperfection. First, expect imperfection from ourselves, then from others. And trust that the perfect solution to your and our problems comes from the outside of us. So expect imperfection and trust in a perfect solution outside of ourselves. In other words... In the face of real-life relationships, Jesus counsels four things. first, verse one, Jesus tells us what not to do. Second, in verse two, Jesus tells us why not to do it. In verses three through six, number three, Jesus tells us how not to do it or what to do instead. and then fourth and finally, in verses, and verses and this is kind of the whole spectrum of the verses, uh, Jesus tells us why to do it at all? That is, why do any of this at all? And so that's sort of our four points. And that, by the way, is on your handout as usual. Breathe easy. And also, we're going to start at the beginning again. Breathe easy. We're going to start at the beginning as usual, and we're going to look at verse 1, and we're going to look at what not to do. What not to do. Jesus' first counsel, what not to do, is stated clearly and concisely. Judge not that you may not be judged. Judge not that you may that you may not be judged. Culturally, this should be very familiar, whether you call yourself a Christian or a non-Christian, or something in between. Okay? This verse is arguably the most quoted verse in the Bible today. The football fan <laughs> with the rainbow wig waving the poster board sign of John 3.16 in the end zone is no longer. Okay? It is now replaced in our cultural moment, in our cultural psyches, by the snarky teen going online and posting something like, in the words of Jesus, don't judge me, bro. Or maybe even, judge not lest you be judged. And it's usually the context of a final rebuttal, right, or subtweet, or underneath a picture of a tattoo, right? So on the one hand, I want to cheer on the team. I really do, I think, and maybe even cheer on the tattoo, I'm not so sure. But I I do want to cheer on the team, and here's what I want to say. I said, yes... Um, who made the users of Snapchat or Facebook America's moral guardians, after all? Okay, like, why are the users of Snapchat or, or Facebook have to feel like they're holding the line? Okay, why is the Davidson Facebook group really the place that you hold the line? Why is that the place where you just sort of say, none shall pass? This is it, okay? Whether that line is political, whether that line is right or left, whether that line is even religious, I agree with the snarky team. Even in the face, like in real world, face-to-face interactions, we are all, I guess I'm tempted to name myself the chief critic. All the time. Of art, of politics, of movies, of Netflix shows. But especially of morals. That's what I want to do. Even if that moral is no one has the right to tell anyone else how to live. We want to be the critic. We want to be the imposer of that moral. We live in an era of what Tom Wright calls hardline pressure groups. Hardline pressure groups—people who nominate themselves to shame the people who break the unwritten rules. So, hardline pressure group is people who nominate themselves to shame the people who break unwritten rules. Again, it's on every side of the equation. This our life. You can't hold certain opinions, or you can't be of a certain ethnic group. Out of fear of guilt by association or fear of ideological pollution, these hardliners look down on other people. They all too quickly dismiss someone without caring to meet them or to know all of the facts. They despise. In the words of our passage, they judge. They, sometimes we, maybe often we, are intentionally or unintentionally playing the role of God there. And that's the main problem, right? Judgy people are acting like God. Judgy people are acting like God. The the God who actually does know everything, right? Even a thought before it hits the tongue. He's what theologians call omniscient. He literally knows everything. And verse 1 tells us not to judge others because of who we are not, God, and who we are, (laughs) human beings. Okay? Okay. We are not absolutely fair, absolutely impartial, absolutely just, absolutely all-knowing God. On the other hand, we are human beings, right? We're capable of critical thinking. We need to assess people and things. We need to live life well, okay? Jesus asks us to do this in verse 6, as well as in chapter 7. He's asking us to discern between false and true prophets. We'll talk about chapter 6 in a (laughs) minute. But we must hold these evaluations loosely, right? They are subject to change. And we know based on appearances and limited information available to us at this point. Okay, our knowledge is what's called provisional. Okay, that's one way of saying knowledge is provisional. Well, First Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 tells us that the biblical God judges the heart and not the appearances. His knowledge is not provisional. His his knowledge is absolute. So look, do not judge does not mean never have any criticisms of anything or any person. Right? Especially if these thoughts are held like a working theory. Subject to real world evaluations and results. Does that make sense? Okay? Like the best of science. Judge not does mean don't hold a view of someone or something absolutely, as if you know it all, without the possibility of ever changing your mind, or that that thing or person would ever possibly change. We need to, we need to trust that that may well happen. And so we've already begun to unpack point two tonight, right? Why not do it? Why not judge not, okay? Why do we choose to judge not, if judge not is not is what we don't do, what we do not do, oh my gosh, okay, if judge not is what we don't do, who chose to put five knots in a whale? Uh, previous Sid. Um, look, because the very factors that we judge other people for are the very things that we are judged for, that's why we don't judge others, okay? The very things that we judge others for are the very things that we get judged for. Just listen to the words of verse 2 if that was super unclear. Judge not, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. My 20 something suburban judging self became a 30 something suburban soccer dad. Am I still so willing to judge suburbia? Not really. <laughs> okay? Why not? because my judgments are no longer about them, my judgments are about me, or us, okay? See, the problem with judging is twofold. I just wanted to say twofold, twofold, okay? First, we oftentimes don't apply the same standards we apply to other people to ourselves, okay? So we oftentimes don't apply the same standards to ourselves. The second fold, we only apply standards to others some, like, so if we don't do that, right? So let's, let's just put it this way. We oftentimes don't apply the same standards to ourselves or we only apply standards to others that we know we can pass. Okay, so I'll say that again. We oftentimes don't apply the same standards to ourselves that we apply to others or we only apply standards to others that we know we can pass. Okay, what do I mean by that? We're so angry that our friend never texts us back. But would he or she say the same thing about us? Or how about email? Okay. (laughs) You can't stand people who are lazy. But what happened to you last Saturday morning? Is it lazier not to set an alarm? Or to set an alarm and hit sleep three times? Mm -hmm. Or would the person we call lazy call us a workaholic? Last example. You can't stand, I can't stand, whatever. We can't be around people who don't affirm other people. Is your or my ability, inability to be around certain people affirming those people as they are? Does that make sense? So I'll put it one more time. You can't stand to be around people who don't affirm other people. Is your inability to be around those people <coughs> affirming them as they are? Does that make sense? Okay, sort of. Or... Are you standing up for every truth, okay, on the other side of the ledger, or just the ones that you need, they, you think that these truths need you the most, right? When's the last time you wrote a, a furious blog post or argued passionately for gravity accelerating at 9.8 meters per second each second? Ah! Okay, like when's the last time you got fired about that? Or what about standing up for the truth that you tell lies when you're scared? One last time you When the last time we declared from the mountaintops, "None shall pass, I'm a liar." We don't do that. Is that interesting? The point is this: the things that upset us the most about other people are often the very things that upset us the most about ourselves. OK? We smell the stink of ourselves, and we call it stinky in other people. That's sort of the five-year-old version. OK? <laughs> we often can't keep the very rules we have for other people. And we certainly can't keep all the rules they have for us. But somehow it's easier for me to focus on how other people let me down than to focus on how I let them down. I appreciate the way that Mary Carr puts it. She's so honest about how hard it is for her to see her own rules and the way she fails fails these rules. She's got a memoir called Lit, Lit, and Mary Carr says in this memoir, she's struggling to recognize that she's an alcoholic. She's really honest with this memoir. And at a low moment in her marriage, she attends an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And after hearing a few stories from a few fellow people at the meeting, a few alcoholics, Mary stands up and says this in the meeting. This is bold. I doubt I'm an alcoholic since I never drink in the morning and nothing particularly bad has ever happened to me, not bankruptcy, a car wreck, nor even the standard mugging. Then Mary sits back down in her fold-up metal chair and then leaves the meeting shortly thereafter. The next morning, she catches herself first thing in the morning, doing what she just claimed she never did, finishing off the rest of a whiskey bottle, drinking in the morning. And she has this moment of clarity, which leads her to almost shout out loud, but certainly scream it in her mind, I have a disease whose defining symptom is believing you don't have a disease. I have a disease whose defining symptom is believing I don't have a disease. This is the nature of more than alcoholism. There is something in all of us that wants to avoid the pain of guilt. I get it personally, very badly. So we judge instead. We condemn others and declare ourselves innocent. But this kind of denial is a symptom of a disease whose defining symptom is believing you don't have a disease. A disease the Bible broadly calls sin. So, I know this is terribly hard to hear, like, impossibly hard to hear. But this self-knowledge is precious, my friends. It's so precious for us to hold, if you'll accept it. It's precious to know that we are ignorant of ourselves because it's the first step to how we don't judge other people. And that's point three of our handout, by the way. If you'll step with me into the image of verses three through five, I think you'll find that pretty comic. It's a pretty comic image. It's rare how I've not really heard anyone unpack this before, but if you think about it, there's someone with a 40 to 45 foot long beam of wood (laughs) projecting like a tree trunk out of their eye socket. And then he or she leans over to inspect the eye of a friend who has a speck of sawdust in it. Okay, so you can imagine the whoosh of air as this person turns and looks with 45 feet of width, like a sail boom or something coming across. And this person is just ducking and covering with the sawdust in their eyes because otherwise it's concussion city. And like, how do you even imagine reaching over there with a washcloth or tweezers or whatever you use to remove sawdust from someone's eye? eye wash? is that what that's for in those labs? Anyway, like... You know, that's the thing. A kind finger? I don't know. Anyway, is that (laughs) dirty finger? Um, Anyway, how can someone with a redwood tree protruding from his or her face actually see a dust moat-sized particle in another person's eye? That's the image there, okay? That's what's going on. But Jesus' point is not that, hey, there's this one person, you, who's really, really, really messed up. And that other person just sort of slightly messed up. No, both clearly have something in a delicate part of their body that hurts. A delicate part of them hurts to the touch and affects their vision of the world. Objectively, the problem is the, uh, a problem of the same size. Okay? Each has a speck of sawdust. But Jesus is asking us to go against our human instinct that minimizes our own faults and maximizes the other person's faults in a given disagreement. You fill in the blank. Let's assume that something we did not only hurt us or others, but like something in our eye, also actually the very thing that we did blinds us to ourselves in some way. Like we can't quite get a reach on it, we can't get a bead on it, we can't see it. And so Jesus is telling us our own faults should seem like a log to us. They should feel and seem huge. And someone else's should seem small, and that's how we're supposed to confront other people. Okay? This is why verse 5 says we need to take the log out of our own eye. That is see the problem. Okay? This is very practical. Like, I'm going to solve all your roommate problems right now. Okay? <laughs> see the problem. And if you can't see the problem, ask the person, what's the matter? I know, it's shocking. Okay, once I've seen the problem, okay, which is hard, very hard, very hard. Let's say I'm not keeping my word. I own the problem by asking the other person to forgive me for being unreliable. For being unreliable, right? And then, this is how I take the log out of my eye. I attempt to make my walk match my talk. Even if it means I've got to change my talk to be more walkable. And here's what I mean. Maybe I need to say no, or maybe just ratchet down their expectations for how I'm gonna perform that day, okay? You might get a 30-minute lunch, okay? Only after I've seen and owned my part in the dispute can I address their part. And our perfectionism, this is so interesting to me, we tend to assume when something's wrong, it's either entirely their fault, I'm all good, or it's entirely my fault. I'm all bad. But likely in this scenario, each person has sawdust, remember, in their eyes. It's likely not 100% to 0% or 0% to 100% deal. Does that make sense? For that particular incident and for our lives in general, if you're a generalizer and you're just seeing patterns in the, in, in the, in the, in the air. And look, I love this part, though. Look at verse 6 with me. Jesus is a supreme realist. He recognizes, yes, we tend to favor our version of events over the other person's version of events, right? But not every problem can be solved through practicing the humility of self-knowledge. Jesus realizes that we need a second step. We need to know others just like we know ourselves. We've got to study others and learn who they are and what they're about, just like we study and learn about ourselves, okay? Most people will receive corrections. If we humbly approach them with like, this idea that my, my sin is 45 feet long, and they will, given time, given space, acknowledge that, yes, maybe relative to your 45 feet, I have a speck. Do you see how that would work almost every time? So, but a very, very small amount of people in this world will not receive your correction. This is just true. According to the book of Proverbs, this small group of people are called fools or scoffers fools or scoffers, by definition, they despise correction. They trample it underfoot. And they will turn and attack you when you try to correct them, okay? like wild dogs and wild pigs. Knowing them and naming them as someone like this is serious, serious business. Okay, Again, talk about where you can go from discretion to discrimination very quickly. It's based on many experiences with that person, not just one. The person needs to have the, the freedom to change in your mind and heart, or in reality. And this isn't an excuse to avoid conflict, which is classic. Just a fool, we're done here. Okay? It's, we don't, when people react poorly to us confronting, them, that does not mean this, necessarily. Okay? However, this is a category that might be reserved for the modern word abuser. Okay, and I just, it's a helpful reminder that there are things that happen to us in this life physical or sexual or emotional abuse which are not your fault if that happens to you. It's not something you did. In that case the log is only in the other person's eye. And please, please if that's happened to you, which has probably happened to a lot of you statistically in this room find someone to talk to about it if you haven't. A counselor, a friend, an intern, me, we'd love to listen. Okay, but but many, ca- many scholars biblically don't think that the pearl or the holy thing is actually just correction. Right? That's, that's, like, that's not the treasure of, of verse six, right? Your pearls or what is holy is not necessarily just correction. Instead, most people who have studied this passage believe that the most sacred and beautiful possession that a Christian can have is the old, old story of when God became a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Later in his gospel story about Jesus, Matthew in chapter 13 tells a story about how a man sees something covered with dirt that's been stepped on and stepped over many, many, many times. It's a treasure hidden in a field. And in his joy, this man goes and sells all he has and he buys that field. And then a verse later, the same man is described as a pearl merchant in search of fine pearls. And he claws, the picture is like he's clawing his way through buckets of fakes and cheap pearls. He's leaning over glass cases with a one of those, like, I don't know, jewelry magnifying glasses. And he's looking to find that one pearl of great value. Who's this man? First and foremost, it's got to be Jesus. Okay? He is the man who in his joy goes and sells all he has and buys the world, the field. He is the merchant in search of fine pearls who finds the one pearl of great value and he goes and he sells everything that he has and he buys it. But what is the dirt encrusted, passed over treasure? What is the pearl of great value which everyone thinks is a fake or way overpriced? According to the rest of the book of Matthew, and the New Testament in its entirety. That treasure, that pearl, is me, it's you, and people like us. Okay? You see, God's love sees below the dirt, below the scuff marks, the way we are all walked all over and passed over by many human hands. God's love sees through the thick, chalky coating of judgments we have made and judgments that have been made upon us. And Jesus sees each of us as God originally designed and meant us to be. And Jesus, deep down, sees this, and he realizes that it's going to cost him everything to get. But every one of us he buys will be worth every precious drop of life and blood for him. You see, in the words of St. Augustine, he loves each of us as if there were only one of us loves each of us as if there's only one of us. But the one who loves us totally is also totally just. He knows us whole. He's not blinded by human limits. He's not blinded by human faults to the ways we have failed to keep even our own laws, much less the measures of God, right? And so the cost to declare us innocent is for Jesus to be clear guilty in our stead. And so the judge of the universe is judged for us. He's given death to give us life without guilt. In an event that Cornelius Plantinga calls obscene beyond telling, God in the hand of butchers. Jesus is on an altar of two by fours, stacked into an X between two thieves on a hill of bones. And this is Jesus in the act of selling all that he has, giving up all he has to purchase us as we are, not as we should be. And this is the true story of God sold out for us. And it's why we do any of this whatsoever at all. Like, what is the point of all of this? Why would we ever do this? How, how are we ever going to stop judging and getting judgy and, judge, and being judged by other people who are judgy? It's the why and the how we don't judge other people. Because the person that you live with, the person you barely know, the person that you love to hate or you hate to love, is like a treasure chest buried in a dirty field. He or she is like a pearl scuffed in an old beach bucket. Perhaps Fyodor Dostoevsky puts it best. To love a person means to see him as God intended him to be. To love a person means to see her as God intended her to be. Whether that person is in a sea, a suburban sea of minivans, or in the chair right next to you. That's what changes us. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for this passage, as hard as it is. It makes me sweat. Um, I pray that you would be with this pearl of great price, with this message, with The truth of how we need to hear this desperately as individuals and as a culture and as a cultural moment in time, but that we've needed it forever because we're human. And I pray that you would move in us, that you'd remind us of the old, old story, and that you'd help us to wrestle with it no matter where we are with the thousandth hearing of the first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.